Joseph. Master James, good morning. Josiden, that's my favorite new nickname for you. It has a ring to it. Yeah, it looks, feels appropriate with you out on the waves, especially on the sup, on the uh, stand-up the other day. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, as we wait for our folks to join, maybe one of the things that we do in the first two minutes of the room each week is, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, we can maybe cover what I was studying that morning, like like this morning, cool. which was, which is uh, chapter eighteen of the Gita, verse thirty-seven of and thirty-eight about that which is that which is poison in the beginning and nectar in the end um, versus that which is nectar in the beginning and poison in the poison in the end. So good. Mm-hmm. So you were on that verse today. Uh-huh. Great. Any uh, it's, different understanding of it as it was explained today? Uh, slightly different. The, I think the conventional understanding of it that I've had over over time, and I've loved this part of the Gita because it's just, and for those joining welcome welcome everybody I see brian my brother i see parul got sarah suman michael good morning everybody if you're here in the in the united states good evening for the anyone on the other side of the world but uh yeah just the concept of what is sweet in the beginning um can be nectar can be you know nectar in the beginning feel great and yet poison in the end and, and vice versa. Uh, what is poison in the beginning can be, and often is, nectar in the end. I mean, even quite literally to inoculate yourself from poison. Biologically, the advice is eat a little bit of every day. And metaphorically, whether it's something as trivial as exercise, although it's not that trivial, all the way to you know building a business, eat eat the poison first, eat the poison that you're avoiding. And it ends up building the business that, that you really want. You know, who was really great at that was Brian Chesky at Airbnb. Mm. He always tackled the hardest stuff first. Mm-hmm. Always. There was, there was a point in time when a survey at the company just pointed to massive problems in every all hands every week, just that's what he started with first. Mm. And I know so many leaders and founders and CEOs wouldn't even do the surveys to find out that type of info first. But then, two, would sp- I was so I was so convinced. I was like, "How is he going to spin this?" Mm-hmm. And he didn't spin it at all. He just I was maybe three months, four months into. Uh, after we had sold and was at Airbnb. And so this whole 5,000 person company that massively successful at that point, it was all new to me. And, and I just figured, okay, he's going to CEO spin this. And he didn't spin it at all. In fact, he gave maybe the, put it in the worst light he could to make it really um, a priority for the, the entire company. 
and it, man, so much confidence was instilled when he did that. Tackle the tough things first. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, and then I just knew from then I was like, okay, I'm working with someone that has no problem kind of tackling, yeah, the poison first. And, and it, it does feel like poison. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't have been too surprised because he actually, he, 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 I think he was in a previous life, uh, like when he was 19 or 20, he actually was a, a bodybuilder. So he knew how to tackle, um, you know, how to approach exercise quite, yeah. you know, uh, he, was, he was pretty attuned to how to do it properly. But, uh, but yeah, and the other part of it that I found so practical of what is sweet in the beginning is poison in the end, what is poison in the beginning is sweet in the end, is whenever something feels sweet, because you, you taste it immediately, mm. Mm. whether it's obviously literally ice cream or whether it is, oh, this new gadget, or oh, I want this experience, and... Yeah. Yeah, now I've got kind of there's this questioning of like, oh, that feels good. I need to examine this a little bit more, more fully if this is actually going to be poison in the end. Mm-hmm. What What about you? What's what is your yeah? What's your interpretation? Uh, poison in the beginning is nectar in the end, um, and vice versa. Um, it applies at all levels, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, obviously, um, if at the material level, if you, if you practice, um, savings and austerity and reinvestment and all of that, um, it may not be as sweet at the beginning, you know, um, but at the end you, you end up in a better place. I mean, just materially speaking. And obviously if you go for the big sweet um, expenses and all of that uh, from the get go, then in the end you could find yourself in trouble in poison. Physically, it's the same thing um, as we were, as we were covering, you know, with exercise and uh, uh, eating right and, all of these, anytime we put in efforts, um, there's some element of discomfort. That's what makes it effort. And physically it's there. Um, uh, emotionally, when we indulge in attachments, um, and we indulge in infatuations, um, all sorts of desires and likes and dislikes and, and just allow ourselves to get carried away, uh, without the, um, governance of the intellect. We uh, end up in all kinds of issues, like we were gonna, we'll talk about today with relationships. Um, whereas restraint, moderation, these things that may not feel, um, you know, discipline um, emotionally, these things may not feel um, great at the beginning. There's an effort involved, but in the end, it um, it's good for everyone involved. And um, intellectually, even intellectually. Um, disciplining ourselves and how we study what we study not just study but what what we expose our thoughts to um, there's definitely more classical type of uh, stimuli for the intellect more noble type of stimuli for the intellect which may not be as 
instantly sweet as, you know, um, whatever the, the news feed is that pops up on our devices, right? Um, so making the choice to not just have the candy at the intellectual level, but um, maybe going for the whole grain bread instead in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, what kind of intellectual stimuli we are um, exposing ourselves to. So at all levels of the personality, um, this law applies. That which is nectar in the beginning is poison in the end. And poison in the beginning in the sense that it's uncomfortable. It requires effort. There's some sort of sacrifice. Uh, at the, when you do that at the beginning, and you make the effort at the beginning, the the end result is is the nectar. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, it applies everywhere. Yeah, the, I think the, perhaps, and then we'll we'll jump into the topic at hand today. But uh, the yeah, perhaps the most practical aspect it, it has provided me is is really in that recognition because you like I said you feel it in in your your body of like ooh this feels good and like yeah. scrolling through social media I'm largely off of social media uh, these days because you just you hear something like this knowledge bomb of that which is sweet in the beginning is poison in the end and and vice versa and you start to I started to just recognize like oh this is sweet in the beginning okay mm-hmm. shit i should i should actually back up and mm-hmm. and see where it's poison and this and a lot of most of it in our lives does not take uh the stretch of the imagination to to realize but it just adds this tinge of 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 dramatic consequence to it to say it's not like be careful with sugary things like endlessly scrolling through social media but it's actually saying like, no, this is poison. Like this will kill you. And, mm-hmm. and that's a helpful, a helpful backdrop to, to at least examine um, whether it's, you know, whether it'll kill you or not is, is kind of secondary to a little bit of a wake up to examine it. All right. Now we've got uh, Brian Perul, Sarah, Michael, Ravi, Mahesh. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to be discussing for about 15 minutes, and then we'll open it up <clears throat> for Q&A. Um, but we're going to be discussing what does the 5,000-plus-year-old philosophy of, of Vedanta, and what does philosophy in general say about optimal relationships with others? And and where this comes from, this is our second room. We Go check us out at yfyi.co on uh any browser, you can go to YFYI Yoga for Your Intellect on YouTube. We'll ever so lightly touch that subscribe button. We've got uh, we've got Instagram Yoga for Your Intellect and Clubhouse every Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific, where we we chat about what philosophy has to say about a specific, very practical part of life, and and then we open up for Q and A on really anything that might be top of mind for folks. So. Join the club. I think we've got 800 or so members in the Yoga for Your Intellect club. Go join, and and uh, you'll get the notifications each week. Today's topic is optimal relationships with others. The reason this is the, the second topic we've chosen is because everything we do, I mean, every so much of what I know I think about in the morning 
at 7 a.m. on a Friday that I have ahead of me for the day requires working with others. And, and many times it's, it's the pleasure to get to work with others. But sometimes the really hard things we're tackling requires sometimes a, a very delicate approach to, to working with others to get through something tough or to start something brand new or to have a hard conversation. And then obviously you get to Friday night and you have the relationships that you have with your friends, loved ones, maybe a spouse, maybe a significant other. And so you have almost all of your waking hours spent in this dynamic of approaching relationships with others. And, and I, it's, it felt like a great, uh, a great second talk because we all are seeking an optimal approach to those relationships with others. And I know speaking for myself so often I walk away from a hard conversation or from a relationship going South and, and just think, geez, I really, that was, I really need to work on an optimal approach to, to how I, I deal with others. Um, so with that in mind, Joseph, could we, could we kick this off with um, something just super high level? And that is, yeah. how does Vedanta approach relationships in general? Mm. Well, um, Swami Parthasarati, our guru, um, chief teacher at Vedanta Academy, um, author of all the books that we're studying and basing all this on, says about relationships that it's not who or what we meet in life that matters, but how we meet it. So it's not who or what we meet in life that matters, but how we meet it. So that how we're meeting it is uh, where the work is. It's not in um, trying to fix the external world, fix external people, but how we, uh, how we relate to them or to it in whatever case that is. Uh, John Milton, another great philosopher, he said, uh, the mind is its own place. It can make a hell out of heaven or a heaven out of hell. So these are all pointing towards looking at what is the subject? Who am I? And how does it, how is it meeting the world? So for those who, um, may not be familiar, uh, Vedanta fundamentally says that a human being has a body, which is a vehicle, which is moving us around the world, having different experiences, taking us to different experiences. And within the body are two equipments, mind and intellect, manas and buddhi. And this is crucial to understand in terms of relationships, because it is we need to know what is it that we are using to interact with the other world. What are these these inner equipments of ours, and how do they how do they play into this? So, as I said, every human being has a body, which is a vehicle. A little bit within the body are the mind and the intellect. You able to hear me, James? I could. It was cutting out there for maybe ten seconds. Oh, okay. So we're just. Uh, setting the stage and, and describing that the subject in Vedanta is really where all the focus is. 
it is a subjective science. So although we are interested in the, obviously in the fact that, that we're talking about relationships, we're interested in an, another interacting with other people, interacting with our environments, what have you. But in general, Vedanta is a subjective science and is interested in understanding who you are. And when we understand who we are, then we know how to interact uh, with the world in this optimal way that we're trying to get to. So the two equipments within us are mind and intellect. Mind is feelings, emotions, likes and dislikes, desires, attachments, all the flowy stuff, all the irrational stuff. It's not bad. It's just factually speaking, irrational, the mind within us. The other equipment is the intellect. And that's the ability to think, to reason, to judge, to decide. It's the, it's the rational aspect of ourselves. So we can take it as head and heart also, intellect and mind. So mm -hmm. when we are engaging ourselves in relationships of any kind, the bottom line is use our intellect. It's not who or what we meet in life that matters, but how we meet it. And what's so crucial to be optimal in how we meet or relate to anything is to keep our intellect involved in the relationship, to remain objective in and through the interactions of with other people, with environments, with our work, with the world itself. And this is really the kind of the broadest um, high level sort of way that Vedanta approaches um, relationships, James. And um, I think uh, it's, it's important to understand uh, that the, all relationships involve, should involve, number one, assessment, correct assessment of the other person, the employee, the boss, the environment, the traffic in our town, the weather. Number one, we've got to assess. And assessment is done by the intellect. So just to drill down a little bit, when we say the intellect must be involved, <clears throat> the first thing the intellect and the constant thing the intellect needs to be doing is to always assess and reassess what and who we're interacting with. When the intellect is assessing, and assessing is different from judging, right? We're not interested in condemning people or, or approving of them. That's not the idea, but just rationally assessing. Okay, today it's 50 degrees outside. I need to wear another layer. Or today it's 75, and I, I'm good with my T-shirt. You know, like that or involves, there's something yeah. difficult we need to talk about, and and we and I should. Move that to the top of the list instead of avoid it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's there, but it, still focus more on assessment, trying to, 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 to keep to make that really clear. Um, the, mm -hmm. When anything that we interact with, we've got to assess. We've got to assess the weather. We've got to assess the traffic. You've got to assess the market that you're working in. You've got to assess our your children's nature or your spouse's nature or boss's nature, whatever it is, we've got to assess 
and understand to the to the best of our ability the general nature of any person thing market environment whatever the case is when we assess we will have correct expectations not otherwise otherwise so the the assessment and the expectations are done at the level of the intellect otherwise all we'll have is i feel like the person should be like this i I would like the person to be like that. I desire my, uh, I desire it to be sunny and warm, but I live in Minnesota. We will have an irrational relationship with the world and constantly there will be friction and agitation and stress. Stress is like we talked about last time is nothing but mental agitations caused by unfulfilled desires in the mind. So one of the quickest ways to stress ourselves out is to have unreasonable expectations for our relationships because unreasonable means they will that that unfulfilled desire will never be satisfied mm. because it can't be satisfied it's impossible that person is not like that and you're waiting for the person to be like that that's irrational that's the mind's way of entering a relationship the intellect so, the intellect's way is to come with proper assessment uh, and proper expectations. This will avoid stress. This is optimal. One of the keys for optimal relationships. Go ahead, James. Sorry. Okay. okay so a couple things to underscore that you're saying is uh, first, it's an apply this, this other subtle equipment, the intellect to the mind when it comes to relationships and, and not just, I feel this way. I, we, I, I should have this conversation with so-and-so or I want this out of this person. I really want to date so-and-so. I want to ask out so-and-so. And, and that's, that would be the mind, the likes and desires. And there should be right off the bat, the application of the intellect, the, um, this subtle equipment that also exists within us to, to guide that, those likes and desires. And the first application of that sounds like you're saying is to assess properly maybe even triple underscoring the word properly because anyone can be like oh well, this is the situation obviously i'm seeing it correctly but you're but you're saying assess properly because obviously if you misassess the situation uh things probably won't go well and so in that in that vein of assess properly could you walk me through a practical example with Let's say a relationship with a, a really tough relationship with a, a coworker and how could someone assess it improperly? And how would, how would you walk me through an example of assessing it properly? Uh, quote unquote. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's one email pe persons in the world, two email persons, three email persons, there's six email persons. There's all kinds of persons in this world, right? And what I mean is there are people that we all uh, have relationships with, we may be one of them, who knows, where you, you know that it will take three emails to get a response from the person. That's their nature. There are three email persons. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering what you meant by three email per Yes, I know yeah. that's Yes. Yeah, like that's their nature, right? And um, I could spend my entire professional career sitting next to them and being stressed out and agitated and complaining to everybody about how this person all 
emails to uh, respond to me. That's the mind relating to the person. That's the mind relating to, not relating to the world as it is, but as I would like it to be, which is completely irrational, right? For whatever reason, that person is has a job, but they, they take three emails to respond. So it is in our duty to assess that, to understand that, expect that, and schedule three emails for them. It's really easy to schedule a mail, you know, you just schedule send. So schedule three drafts, uh, do three drafts with, at, at different days, and it'll go out so you know. You plan your work accordingly. So it's not about, I would like them to be a one-email person. I would like everybody to be a one-email person. I would like most people to do what they say they're going to do. But this is not the world, right? There's no... There's no workplace in the in the world where everybody is uh, on point like that all the time. It just doesn't work. So then the the saying is uh, there's a great saying by this poet Josh Billings. Is uh, he says all grumbling is tantamount to why is a lily not an oak? Mm. All grumbling is tantamount to why is a lily not an oak? So if I have a problem with a coworker or a somebody I'm I'm doing something with, then the, it's very literally true. I have a problem. It has nothing to do with them. So as human beings, we have this intellect to assess and expect and relate accordingly. That's on us. It's never about all of my stress, all of my strain, all of my agitation about somebody or something or somewhere not being as I like it to be is my weakness of intellect. It has nothing to do with the other person. It mm. has nothing to do with the other person. That and, is, yeah. I think that, that I'll just, uh, I'll try to uh, call these things out because I think, or at least underscore some of the things that you're saying, because it is, it can so easily, I know in, in our previous conversations be missed and it's just the pennies are dropping as you reiterate these things that the, the room, this, the title of the room is optimal relationships with others, but you're pointing to this, this starts with you and your proper expectations of the person you have a relationship with and your proper underscored uh, assessment of this is the type of the person type of person that, that they are with that, with that proper expectations. And sometimes you need to, you know, readjust your, often readjust your assessment of, of that, that type of person. But you're, do you mind saying that quote one more time of, uh, about all grumbling? All grumbling is tantamount to why is a lily not an oak? Mm. So you Josh want Billings. that, and you want that three email person to like, why the hell does Todd take three emails, three texts? Why does Todd never reply to my texts or my Slack messages or my emails? And you're saying this is, this is not about the other person. This is an improper assessment uh, internally. Correct. Yeah. Our agitation, our internal agitation in any relationship is entirely due to our irrational expectations for others, for the environment, for the world we live in, etc. 
This is this is what Vedanta says. Man, that is so key. At least to give that relationship a better chance. I know for I'm I'm always three minutes late, four minutes late, five minutes late to everything. And and I think it's it's something to where I I, I feel bad about it, but there's there's something I remember seeing a study of folks with ADHD um, have this hyper optimism that they can get two more things done in the next 15 minutes. And, uh, and it causes this strain with, with my wife where I'm just always five minutes late. And mm. I think you're basically what you're saying is she needs to check herself because <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but what, but what you're saying is there are certain, there are certain things that we can do yeah. and the, the, the reverse being that she is, she loves uh, to she loves to plan out the day the next day yeah. and she wants to plan that out with me the night before I'm like I there's who knows what's going to happen tomorrow can you just plan it out can you think through it it's all going to change but instead the grumbling or the annoyance that I have as we go to bed where she's like okay now we got this tomorrow and we have this tomorrow it comes from me internally just wishing that reality was uh you know, that grumbling is wishing the lily was an oak. Yeah, so uh, when I when I catch up with her later today, I'm, I'll, I can just tell her to, to put everything five minutes earlier on the calendar. This is an easy fix, you know? Which she, which she did. She started to learn that, like, <laughs> uh, about a year or two ago. She just put – and that's totally what to what you're saying. 12 years into our relationship, about 11 years in, she um, probably through her study – of Vedanta is she just yes started to add I show up to things now 20 minutes early because she puts it 30 minutes early on my calendar and I'm just like sitting sitting around she's like yeah we the appointment isn't until you know 1 30 but that's exactly (laughs) your point um I think the grumbling did stop at a certain point and it was it was uh, a reassessment of of that you know that other person but it was within her internally. And you're actually, you're absolutely right. She actually did pretty much completely fix it. Yeah. For things. So she's got okay. it already. Okay. So first step with the, the use of the, the, the employment of the intellect towards a relationship with others is to make sure you have the proper assessment internally. Okay. Keep going. Yeah, so proper assessment by the intellect, always relate that way, as opposed to uh, relating uh, based just on our likes and dislikes and irrational expectations of the mind, based on our preferences, right? So always always be objective. And you you mentioned, I I didn't want to let it pass, you said that uh, correctly, that you've got to regularly assess people especially those who you work with constantly if you're working with coworkers with your team with your family obviously um everybody's got to assess it's not just one time that you have to assess people so you assess so uh george bernard shaw was asked uh, who his favorite person was you know and he said my tailor because every time i go to him he makes fresh measurements 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's it. That's the idea. It's, it's not that the intellect should never be just put down. It is the is the thing. Our life should be deliberate. Our, the, as Thoreau said, I went to the woods to live deliberately. And it sounds like, oh, gosh, man, you guys are giving us more work now. I've got to be deliberate on top of all my work. I've got to also be deliberate. It's like saying, oh, you're making me hold the steering wheel in the car, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's still true. You've got to learn to hold the steering wheel for the whole drive. No, even if it's a 20-hour drive, you, unless you're in a self-driving car, you need to have your hand on the steering wheel, right? And so we've got to constantly keep the intellect involved in our uh, relationships and through assessment and expectation. Um, another point, there's so many points, but, uh, another one, I guess we could take up unless you wanted to take any questions yet, James, uh, I see someone has their hand up. I don't, I don't sure, sure. Go for it. You're the, you're the moderator. So yeah, go for it. And, and maybe cover that la that second point, just so we can get through these two practical applications of, of the yeah. intellect, you know, these two practical applications for all of us going into our Fridays, um, for optimal relationships and then Q and a, which I know can kind of can go, uh, multiple different directions. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Ravindra, we, we see you there and, uh, we'll bring you up. We're going to make, uh, one more point about optimal relationships before we, uh, start the Q and a, and for those who are new to the room or have arrived, uh, we are, uh, yoga for your intellect club. And you can find out more um, about our, our work uh, in general at yfyi.co. Uh, James and I also have an Instagram there. And uh, we're planning surf and Vedanta retreats in Malibu, all kinds of fun stuff. So, uh, And we have this weekly club here, 7 a.m. every Friday on Clubhouse. So follow us here. Uh, follow us on our YouTube channel. Uh, subscribe to that. Um, we've got full podcast episodes coming out weekly, um, diving into various topics like this. So, exactly. um, and, and if people yeah. want the overview of what Vedanta is, um, the source, uh, philosophy of, of nearly all Eastern philosophy, eight to 10,000 year old philosophy, go check it out at yfy.co. And there's a great, uh, we've recorded some, some conversational approaches to, to describing what Vedanta is fully. Right now, we're just talking about its application. What does philosophy say about optimal relationships with others? So, yeah, go ahead with with the second practical approach here. Sure. So um, another really broad stroke that's important to note about relationships is to beware of attachment. Attachment is deadly for relationships of all kinds. So attachment is any time that we pollute our love or our identification with another person or place or thing with selfishness. Anytime we pollute our love, our identification with another person or thing or place with selfishness, that is attachment. To put it another way, attachment equals love plus selfishness. If attachment equals love plus selfishness, then pure love, the ideal way of relating to others, is attachment minus selfishness. So the intellect has got to govern 
how much selfishness we are bringing into any relationship and try to become more selfless, more unselfish, more service-oriented, more about duties, not rights, more less about what do I get out of this relationship and more about how can I contribute to this uh, larger relationship, larger family, larger team, whatever that is. Because the moment we start being attached, the moment we start approaching uh, relationships uh, selfishly, we are setting the stage for them to be broken. Our teacher, Swami Parthasarathy, has an entire book on attachment called Holocaust of Attachment. And it describes how it's not that people uh, hate each other, that they can't work together, they can't live together, they can't uh, stay married or whatever. It's not that they don't like each other. It's that they're too close. They're too attached. There's too much selfishness. There's too much demanding, which drives the other person away or drives the, the team away or drives the object away. You could even in a, in a business setting, there, you, it's possible that if you're constantly taking and approaching everything selfishly, what do I get out of this? What can I get out of this? That, that, is, that will make everyone allergic to you. No one will be able to work with you or work with any of us if we have that approach. So desires of the mind, again, that's why we started by saying that every human has a mind and an intellect. The mind is where all these irrational, selfish desires exist. All of these attachments, all of this endless demanding is in the mind. The mind does not have the capacity to restrain or regulate itself. That's where the intellect comes in. The intellect has to come in and say, well, instead of only thinking about what do I get out of this person? What do I get out of this family? What do I get out of this world? What do I get out of this everything? The intellect can come in and say, how can I serve those around me? How can I join a higher cause? How can I sublimate my, my lower desires and grow in this relationship? So anytime a group of people have this attitude of raising each other, serving each other, serving the society rather than taking, they'll be at peace. The relationships will be nourishing the relationships will feel like refreshing. They will, they will recreate people rather than weigh them down and agitate them. And imagine everybody in a, in a if one person in a, a relationship is serving the other, the relationship will work, even if the other one's really selfish. But if both people have this inspiration to serve each other and look after the higher good, it's a uh, utopia. And this applies also in boardrooms and, uh, uh, with teams and executive teams and all kinds of everybody, uh, your intramural soccer uh, team that you play in the weekend, everything, anybody who is comes with the attitude of service, of of contributing to the larger whole, to the to the larger group, they will be at peace. The relationship will be healthy. Everyone will appreciate them being there. The moment we come with selfishness, with attachment, saying mine, I want this, it repels people. It repels the other. A few, a few things that that come to. I think it's interesting that it's it's also just another example of. You can try to burlap the world, 
or just figure out how we're, how you can wear sandals. And instead of like trying to change everyone around you, you're saying, even if you're the only one that approaches the relationships with a selfless attitude, a, a attitude of service, it will work. And those relationships will, will flourish. It might not be utopia, but they'll flourish. And it's one of the best investors in Silicon Valley, a mentor and a friend, a guy named Alot Gill. He tells this story that he sold one company to Google and he's employee like 1950 and he's wow. sitting at his desk and he's like, I'm employing 1950. This is you know early days of Google, but almost 2000 employees in. He obviously is thinking, or it, what he, what he says is he's thinking, man, all the good jobs are taken here. And he's sitting next to his friend. And they're talking about that of what are the cool projects, you know, for the next five years that they should get involved in and him largely reflecting on, yeah, I sold my company to Google. This is cool, but maybe I'll just be here for two years uh, while I vest and then, and then peace out because all the good jobs are taken and his, his friend and uh, the guy he's sitting next to in his first few weeks kind of nods and agrees and uh, at least in appearance and fast forward two years, he leaves Google. He works on a few different cool sounding projects, but he leaves after two years and uh, fast forward a, a few years later and he's done multiple things since then. The guy sitting next to him <clears throat> that joined that same week is Sundar Pichai, who's now the CEO of mm-hmm. Google. And, wow. and Sundar um, approached it very differently. A lot said and said that he took on one of the hardest projects that was failing and just day after day, a lot would see him and be like, why did he take that project? <clears throat> and, uh, and day after day, he approached it far more selflessly if hey, this project needs help. And fast forward to a then selling his next company to Twitter. And he told the CEO at the time, Dick, Dick Costello, he said, um, out of 25 different executives, he uh, is meeting with Dick as he takes the job as CEO. And he says on the CEO's first day, he said, I'm here to just be helpful. I'll do anything that, that you need. And, and these are the skills that I'm good at, but I really, uh, I really want to make myself available to you for you to use me. However, I can be, however I can be most helpful. And he took that approach because he just knew that that worked so well for, he had that great experience of watching that work so well for Sundar at, at Google. And within six months, uh, he gets made chief strategy officer of Twitter. And <clears throat> the way he tells the story, they ask the CEO, why, why me? I'm, I'm the youngest of the 25 executives. And he said, uh, CEO said, out of all 25 conversations in my first few weeks with every executive, you're the only, the only one that didn't come in with a strategic plan of what we should do or what you wanted to do. You're the only one that said, what can I do to help? And I'm, I am down to do whatever can be helpful. Amazing. Cool example of, of this, um, service oriented, um, attitude, which is absolutely key for, um, optimal relationships, you know? Great. Yeah. The, uh, I'll, I don't want to, I want to uh, get to the Q and a, 
but uh, it, it also reminds me of Peter Thiel, and this is just my Silicon Valley kind of a work experience coming through here. And then uh, we don't have to mention tech or no, Silicon Valley anymore. It's great. But, no, it's great. I, super practical for everybody, I'm sure, James. Well, the Peter Thiel has a really interesting observation, one of the smartest investors, that it's conflict arises not when people want different things, but when people want the same thing. Wow, yeah. And mm-hmm. and you, you'd think it's because two co-workers want to take things in different directions, but the conflict is, is arising because they really want, they both want that chief strategy officer job or the COO role or that VP role. And that conflict mm-hmm. arises when they selfishly want the same thing, um, not because they are trying to, you know, outwardly it looks like they're pulling things in different directions, but they're both approaching it selfishly. And, and I think one of the pennies that has dropped for me as you, as you recount this this morning is saying if only one of them approaches it selflessly, then that relationship can flourish. Yep, absolutely. And it, it flourishes for everybody, but most importantly, for oneself. So what's a healthy relationship for us? What's an optimal relationship, basically, is one where we can remain at peace and continue to relate. That's all. So if we come to a relationship with the idea of serving, of being uh, uh, with a service-oriented attitude, unselfishly, we will be at peace in the relationship, irrespective of everybody else. You'll be at peace, and other people will be... uh, attracted to you in the sense of uh, the wanting to stay in the relationship of whatever kind it is. So it is a subjective uh, success. All relationships, when we talk about optimal, ideal relationships, what it really is talking about is our subjectively, the relationship is a success for us. Even that we can't control others. We can't control what we relate to. We can only control how we relate to it. Uh, that is beautiful that it's, it's not anyone. We've all heard like approach a relationship with service oriented attitude, but the addendum you're adding to it is you will immediately benefit. Like you you will be the beneficiary of that peace that you will have in that relationship. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That is what, one of the things I love so much about this philosophical, just a philosophical approach to these practical parts of life is it's, it is, it's, it's rarely ever like, and here's the rub, here's where it gets hard. It's actually like, here's where you can brush away the dust and you see, this is where it'll benefit you uh, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So because of time, I think we should open up for Q and a for folks. If, if you want to, Joseph. Um, yeah, those, let's do it. Sure. Those two two things that I've jotted notes down, and for everybody that's joining for the first time, these are basically public conversations that Joseph is is my teacher within ancient philosophy of, of Vedanta or the Upanishads. If you all are familiar or have heard of the the ancient um, Upanishadic uh, texts from the Vedic scriptures, basically sitting at the source of all Eastern nearly all Eastern philosophy coming from um, the Upanishads. 
And, and so it might be eight, 10,000 years old. We don't really know how old, uh, wisdom, but this is, uh, it's so damn practical in our day to day. And the things you mentioned today, two practical things we could take into our lives this Friday is proper assessment of, of the situation and, and the, uh, the other person, spouse, significant other, the coworker, proper assessment, realistic, aware, um, proper assessment and a continual proper assessment of, of ourselves and the other person, um, knowing that, uh, all grumbling is tantamount to uh, wishing a lily was an oak and are asking why is a lily not an oak and why is this person, why is A not B or act like I want them to act, but instead of properly understanding that's how they are. And then second, um, having this <clears throat> selfless approach for the immediate gain of you, you now have peace in the relationship. Um, but also the the opposite seems to be seems to be true. Of you bring in selfishness, you want something out of the relationship. No matter what happens, you're going to be, or it sounds like. Correct me if I'm wrong. That there will be a lack of peace if you approach relationships with person, you know, people X, Y, Z, and what you really want is something out of that relationship. There will be a a disquiet to that relationship on an ongoing basis. Is that too, did I take that too far? No, no, that's true. That if we're selfishly approaching relationships with people, with coworkers, with the environment, whatever, that means we are approaching it based on our irrational desires, preferences of the mind, the likes and dislikes of the mind. I would like it to be this way or like them to be that way. That approach to relationships is bound to agitate. There may be those halcyon moments where, for whatever reason, or just how things line up, the world or the person or your team or whatever happens to match your likes and dislikes. At that time, you'll be like, I'm happy because everything matches the, these, these desires and, and uh, ir- likes and dislikes and, and irrational demands of our mind. Everything externally lines up with it. But that rarely stays that way. The world is constantly changing. Or the world could stay exactly perfect and your mind says, actually, now I want something else. It's not like the mind get what, gets what it likes and is satisfied. So anytime we, are const- anytime we make uh, the approach to relationships based on the likes and dislikes and desires of our mind, yes, we are, to answer your question, we are basically going to be perpetually agitated in some way or the other. All right. Well, let's open it for any questions that folks might have. Uh, yeah, I see uh, uh, Sudhir. Uh, Sudhir Gujar is here. I'll invite you up, Sudhir. Sorry for everyone else I've missed uh, as you've been raising your hands. Um, uh, not so good at the app yet, working on it. Um, so, uh, Sudhir, um, if you'd like to come up, I tried to just let you up. Let's see. And anyone else, any other questions or any questions that people have around optimal approach to relationships I, I i bet we're just scratching the surface on what joseph knows of, of the optimal relationships with others and practical questions of something that you're struggling with right now it's uh could be a good use of of joseph's time as well go ahead sudhir uh hello good morning to everyone 
Uh, I hope I'm audible. You are. Thank you. Lovely. Uh, my question is about uh, unrequited love. Uh, now, what happens is, uh, you know, uh, when when there is one way love with somebody, and the fact is, this is not just puppy love, or you know, it's not just infatuation. Uh, when one person uh, invests everything. Uh, uh they bring their whole self into a particular relationship but that is only one way and it's not uh, uh, requited it's not uh, uh, you know uh, mm. what do you say you know there isn't uh, an equ- equity when it comes to the loving back uh, in mm. the same relationship uh, yeah. then how does uh, the person like uh, the person who uh, has that deal with it because over a period of time uh, it it would definitely um, affect other relationships as well and uh, this sort of uh, uh, thing just you know it's 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 basically a rabbit hole uh, when it is uh, when uh, you know when things don't go the correct way so how do you advise or how do you counsel such a minds what mindset to be developed and how to deal with uh, this particular scenario the problem is the yeah thank you sudhir the problem is the idea that there's a correct way the it's the desire that we have we have a desire for the other person to be a specific way maybe to express a, a specific way or to do things a specific way that we think is more or less loving uh that's more or less equitable or, or whatever there is no such thing as a there there is no such objective correct way that another person should be that is our selfishness projecting onto the world rather than having a correct way in mind and then waiting for that correct way to appear externally in your life stop that start relating to the other person the other thing the environment whatever it is as it is as they are not as we want them to be you will be at peace no but they don't love me back that's them okay but they're uh they they they're rude to me okay that's their nature love them serve them you committed to a relationship for some reason so be in it with the correct assessment correct expectation that's the only way sudhir because it, it, otherwise we have this idea i'm glad you used that phrase the, that they're not acting in the correct way there is no correct way you think there's a way you've decided there's a correct way a person should be or someone thinks there's a correct way and then we hold the people in our lives against that uh that standard and there is no standard this is what vedanta is saying it is entirely subjective we started with the quote from milton the mind is its own place it can make a hell out of heaven or a heaven out of hell so you can be living with the most wonderful person and completely uh mess it up because the person you want the person to be different than how they are so uh also that's one point to to keep in mind the main point in fact the other thing to keep in mind is the world is change people are change that's what the world is you change the people you relate to change everybody in life is constantly changing so just because a person uh and some if we're especially if we're talking about as you said uh, it's not puppy love you're talking about a long term relationship 
in long-term relationships, they go through all different, there's so many relationships within that relationship, as we all know. Things progress, they, they go into hibernation, they go into uh, much more intensification at some points. These things change. So even if a, a person is a certain way now, that doesn't happen to line up with your likes and dislikes, even if you can't persuade yourself to have correct expectations, you can at least persuade yourself with the intellect to understand that something will change eventually. Either I will change or they will change or something will change. So that also, there's no permanent, there is no permanent relationships at all. There's no such thing. What is permanent? That's a whole bigger story that <laughs> we'll get on another day, perhaps, but. We've got to understand relationships themselves are temporary and changing. So I don't know, Sudhir, if that helps you, but you can add all of that and uh, get some direction. And I would repeat, there's an incredible book by our guru, Swami Parthasarathy, called The Holocaust of Attachment. I recommend it to anybody who's really interested in this topic. Holocaust of Attachment really goes into this. And for those who are doing business, who have companies, who have that kind of stuff going on in life, uh, there's another book called Governing Business and Relationships, which really talks about how all of these um, ideas apply uh, in, a, in our sort of work life. Just thought I'd mention those. Uh, you okay, Sid here? Yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, I, I did get a general sense of direction as to how you're projecting it, especially the part when uh, you covered about uh, relationships uh, basically um uh, that uh, you know each one in a way is a different person and the mind is uh, different on its own and uh, yeah i mean of course it's it's something that i'll have to uh, rethink and uh, uh, probably some other question does come up pop up i'll uh, share that with you and uh, if not maybe uh, throughout the conversation as it goes on. Thank you. Thanks, Sudhir. And uh, if you're not Thank following, you please much. please follow us and stay in the club. We're here every uh, Friday. And uh, Michael, uh, let me invite Michael up. Michael Ellison has a question. He's hey, what's up, guys? Can you hear me? Hey, Michael. Yeah. How you doing? Michael. Right hey, on. Shout out, James. How you doing, man? Thanks. Thanks for joining, buddy. Yeah, of course. Love what you guys are doing. Been following a lot of the work checked out some of the YouTube videos, really, really enjoy it. Um, Thank you, buddy. Joseph, I've got a question for you, man. I, I've heard you talk about seeking yourself or um, pursuing your truth as, as being the re most rebellious thing that a human can do, I think is what you said. Um, I'm on this journey of self-discovery and kind of deconstructing a lot of systems in my life. And I've just got a question for you around um, I guess specifically like how you balance the time and the tension of, of pursuing a personal or individual truth while also maintaining community or close relationships. Sure. Uh, yeah, great question. Um, one, one thing is that when you really start doing the work that sounds like you're doing, um, things do change. Your, as I was saying um, uh, to Sudhir a moment ago, uh, the the world is always changing, and but so is our mind also. So we can get our world set up 
just how we like it. Everything, you know, the best, everything exactly how we like it, all the right people. Um, but when we start changing our own minds, which is what you're doing consciously when you say on the path of self-discovery, right, changing your approach, then um, it's possible that that things don't that used to be comfortable are not are not comfortable, but that you used to be interested in. You may not be interested in anymore. Um, and that can that can impact relationships and things that we do with other people and not other people. So um, the the idea really and not to be trite, but uh, to thine own self be true and it must follow as night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. Right. This is uh, Polonius's advice to Laertes. Uh, if we're true to ourselves, we can't be false to any others, which is is. I think perhaps one of the more crucial things in, in relationships and communities is to be authentic to ourselves. Right. And that, that's, that is how to be authentic to others. Um, so that may change is the point. And, and you're, you're right to ask definitely your, your community may evolve. You may, um, there may be parts of your community that you don't, you no longer relate to as much. Uh, there may be new community uh, entering your life, um, but definitely the highest calling is to your own growth. That that is the highest ideal, and not to be extreme, but I don't know. This this one quote pops into mind. Uh, Buddha said, "If you can find people to walk with you, walk together joyfully." Talking about the path, the truth. If you can find people to walk with you walk together joyfully if not walk on walk on alone so uh sometimes depending on our our situation and our our level of application sometimes we we do have that sense of uh maybe not fitting or not or separating ourselves from uh company and 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 community that we earlier were were much more uh within um, so that, that can happen, but the, the dedication has got to be always to understanding we come here alone, we go alone and we are each people, each one of us is on their own journey, even in a family, even people that are living together, uh, even as a nuclear family, you got to understand everybody, even your own children, they've come through you, not from you. Everybody's on our own journey but if we can find satsang if we can find good company that helps us uh towards that truth grab it hold on to it because it's really um useful and i think that's a lot about james's inspiration with yoga for your intellect and our our work in general that we're doing is trying to create uh, a community to support all of us who are interested in that movement towards uh the true self and uh yeah so one last thing to say is that generally when we're talking about how much to how much to apply ourselves how much effort to put in how much sort of as you say rebellion to undergo um in our lives generally a good way to think of it is as a keeping a comfortable stretch a comfortable strain we should be pushing our our limits of tolerance but not so much that we um go beyond it. So you, it's not that we should just get inspired and go sit in a cave and separate ourselves completely from our world. If we're, if we're nowhere near that, 
that level of, of detachment. We should respect our needs and our and and those who have also respect those who have uh, benefited us and have a sense of repayment. And but definitely keep a comfortable strain in all of our efforts, um, whatever that they may be. And and I might add there, and no, it's eight a.m. So I'm on dad duty here. Um, in a, in a sec, but the it, it reminds me of you can hear my daughter in the background. It's it reminds me, Michael. I think that that question I'd be happy to chat with you one on one with because I think as you as you go from if Polonius' advice, if you flip it, of you know if you aren't true to yourself, then you're only going to bring you're only going to create false relationships. And as I look back and especially in my twenties or early 30s, there were a lot of false relationships. A great, uh, a wise mind, this guy, Naval Ravikant, said, uh, if you aren't friends with the person when you're not drinking, then you're not friends. <laughs> and and I stopped drinking for the most part. I still have a drink here and there, but just I loved waking up in the morning and feeling great and kind of attached to that as opposed to staying out late um, with friends and a few years ago. And as I did that, um, it just the relationships that were only built around drinking naturally fell away. There was no, you know, there was no huge um, tension or conflict, but they just naturally fell away as I was more in that specific realm, more true to what I really wanted. Um, and so maybe that's what you'll see too is not this blowback, but just a natural, very natural kind of realignment of, of those around you. Yeah. appreciate that guys. Uh, it's good, good wisdom. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the question. Uh, Victory, Victory is there and uh, we'll invite you up. Hopefully you're still there. And I'll, and I'll jump down and, into the uh, audience as I get my daughter in the car for school. But Michael, thank you for the question. Uh, Sadir, thank you for the question before that. And uh, man, I, the q and um, this is, yeah, this is the meat of it. So thank you all for these questions. Yeah, Michael, were you, were you good? Did you have anything else? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I actually don't know how to jump down. So I think that's oh, okay. probably why I'm still up here. I can do it. I got you. All right. Thanks, Michael. And uh, any other questioners? Anyone, any questions? Uh, I'm happy to stay here for a while. I think James has to head out. Um, but uh, any questions, any thoughts I, anybody has? I, I did want to ask um, about parents and children. Mm, sure. And the approach with a four-year-old or a six-year-old and, and how to most optimally approach just who, I mean, everything that goes into it, uh, you know, appropriate expectations, letting be who they are while also helping them reach their potential. Yeah. Yeah, well, the main thing, uh, you know, uh, Swami, uh, our teacher, Swami Pratisarthi, he's got a very famous talk called How to Mold Your Children. And um, it was always one of the bestseller. Uh, you know, I, I remember when there were audio cassettes of it and then CDs, and now you can get it online on Kindle or whatever, uh, or wherever you listen to stuff. But it's called How to Mold Your Children. And people would buy it and think, okay, cool, I'm getting the insight on how to mold the children from the enlightened Swami. 
and then uh, maybe they're disappointed to find out that the entire lecture is about yourself. They never says do this to the children, tell this to the children. Uh, nothing. It's there's nothing in it about the children. The entire how to mold your children message is you show the way. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said something to the effect of. Uh, there's no better way to raise a child in the way you think they should go than to go that way yourself. So ultimately, uh, generally, this this question about parenting and how to parent, what's the ideal way of parenting? Uh, leave them alone as much as possible. Leave them alone as much as you can. Let them live their lives. Uh, don't uh, give sermons. Don't give lectures. The mind doesn't like that. The mind will reject that. What is forced is never forceful. So you show the way and only give knowledge when it's taken. Knowledge is taken, not given. So you give, you set an example for what you think is the best life for yourself, and that will be the best teaching for children that they could have. Um, not giving lectures and sermons and things. This is one thing about it. Um, and the other thing is, uh, as you said, James, to recognize that children are completely independent beings. They have their own nature. And uh, this is hugely important uh, for parents to not come with preset expectations of what they want their child to be, to do, to say, to how they want them to act. Nothing. Like any other person, we should look at them and respect them as they are and relate to them accordingly. But there's so much other, there's so much more on parenting. Um, see if you can find that how to mold your children uh, top lecture by Swami Parthasarathy. It's amazing stuff. So thanks, James. And uh, Ashish, go ahead. See you up here in the, um, up here on the speaker hi, panel. Joseph. Hi. Yeah, hi, Joseph. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, whatever you're talking about, so uh, when I'm hearing to you or I hear to similar people in the past, so I completely agree with that. Okay. So I know that this is the right way to uh, do these things. This is, uh, this is the way I need to approach the relationship. But sometimes or most of the time, I should say that I forget that this is the way I should behave uh, with my near and dear ones. Mm -hmm. and uh, with my in my professional life so this is the way uh, that i completely agree that we should be behaving and i have uh, read multiple books and uh, most of the books also uh, uh, tell us about these kind of approaches we know that this is correct we completely agree when we are listening to someone and sometimes we follow that as well but but sometimes we forget sometimes we don't behave in this manner Considering that we agree, still we deviate from this right path, this right approach. Yeah. I don't know how to solve this because yeah. you are completely making sense. Others also completely make sense in a similar lines, but still we don't follow that path. Sometimes we forget sure. what needs to be done. Yeah. Thank you, Ashish. Very great uh, practical question. You know, uh, as we say, uh, I know better. Why did I do that? So the, the, this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Mere knowledge um, doesn't help us in that way. Mere academic information does not help us. What helps us is wisdom. When, when 
in fact, we say we've understood something, but we haven't truly understood it until we are living it. You understand? So if a person comes to your house and knocks on the door and says, hello, sir, uh, just like to let you know that uh, we've discovered arsenic in the water here in your town or whatever, you know, some poison. And uh, just letting you know, and you say, thank you. And then you go to the tap and uh, get a glass of water and drink it. You know, you've understood the words that the person said. There's poison in the water. There's arsenic in the water. But you don't truly understand what that person says until you put the water down and walk out of the house and don't re-enter because you don't even want to breathe the water in the place. That's when we say you've understood. So there is this gap between gaining of information and gaining of wisdom, which is what you're talking about. You've read books, I've read books, and we still make mistakes in our relationships. We still get agitated by our relationships. We still wish people were different than they are. We still wish that the profit was loss and loss was profit and cold was heat and heat was cold. We still have all of that irrational expectations because even though we've read about having correct expectations, having right assessment, we haven't truly brought it on board into our operating system as a human being. So that gap between gaining of information and living it, living the information, going from knowledge to wisdom, that is bridged by what in Sanskrit is called manana, which means reflection. You've got to stop reading, start thinking. So we keep on buying more books. We keep on listening to more lectures. We keep on following new teachers. We keep on trying new uh, self-help methods, whatever it is. And it doesn't work because we're only going on the surface. We're going on the, the breadth of the knowledge, not going to the depth of the knowledge. So we recommend much less reading and much more cogitating, reflecting, looking at ideas and reflecting upon them repeatedly, well after they be, are entertaining to you. First time we read some ideas, it's entertaining, it's interesting. It's an intellectual kick, right? And then we want the next intellectual kick, so we read the next book. Vedanta says, whoa, decide on a systematic course of study of, for self-understanding, for self-development, and plunge into that. Do it disciplined in a disciplined way, like a university student approaches their coursework. They do it out of a sense of obligation. They don't always like it. It's not always what they feel like reading or thinking about, but they do it in a dedicated, disciplined, consistent way. So at our ashram in India uh, called Vedanta Academy, uh, our teacher Swamiji, Swami Parthasarathy, he's running a three-year course and that three-year course only covers 12 books in three years. And those people are studying seven days a week, 365. They wake up every morning at 4 a.m. till 9 p.m. It's a full daily schedule. The Bhagavad Gita is two years of the course. That We spend two years studying 700 verses of one text with the idea of limiting our intellectual uh, exploration and sensuality and taking the time to actually daily Think about what that knowledge is saying. And as you think, so you become. So you've got to constantly refresh your intellect, re remind yourselves of these higher values, these higher ways of living. This is how we're all doing it. So every morning we wake up and we study. And now 
you can do that entire three-year program online. It's an incredible thing that uh, is now available. Some of us had to fly to India, go there, sit there, be there for years to gain the three year, the knowledge of the three-year course. Now in your home, you can have it. If you go to vedantaworld.org, uh, you find your way to the e-learning program. You can see what I'm talking about. But whatever it is, there should be a dedicated, systematic, disciplined approach to study and reflection to strengthen the intellect to gain that right perspective, and as you say, Ashish, to not forget it. It's got to be brought more and more to the front of our minds until it becomes second nature, that I should be objective, I should be detached. The way you, affect, you approach the world will become more and more effortless, and as you, as you rightly point out, you will forget it less and less. You will constantly have that objectivity in life. So get on to that regular daily study. It's not enough to just read it when we feel like it or read it when we're agitated. Oh, I'm stressed out. Now I'm going to read about spirituality. I'm going to read about higher values. No, that's like waiting until we get cancer to uh, start living well. Okay, I've got cancer now. I'm going to start eating a salad every day. Start eating a salad now. Don't get the cancer in the first place, you know? So in the same way, We've got to strengthen our intellect proactively, even now, right? Strengthen our intellect on a daily basis. Even when we think everything's hunky-dory, we've got everything under control, my life is all set. That's the time to strengthen your intellect, strengthen your understanding, live from the highest perspective possible. And that happens through daily yoga for your intellect. That's why we call this channel Yoga for Intellect. That's why we have yfyi.co and all of this is to make people say, what is yoga for your intellect? It is that morning study where you sit and reflect and strengthen the intellect to meet the challenges of life without losing the plot, as you say, correctly. So uh, thanks, Ashish. Great question. Uh, really practical. Uh, are you okay? Anything else? Yeah, Joseph, uh, I understood what you tried to convey. So, uh, so in short, you're trying to convey that I need to practice. I need to uh, sincerely do this every day in and out uh, day and uh, day out uh, plus i need to have some kind of hunger some kind of desperation that i have to follow uh, this method to succeed in this particular approach right practice yeah, desperation yeah 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 hopefully you don't have to become desperate though this is the point uh, uh, the no, wise man no. learns uh, the the fools learn from their own experience wise learn from others so oh, the okay. more you can learn, the more you can do with knowledge now before things get desperate. I mean, of course, once you're desperate, in a way, it's a useful thing. It makes you start thinking. But before getting into desperate situations of whatever it is in life, whatever the situation is, before getting there, while we're still healthy and able to think and able to question our, uh, our approach to life, we've got to... Strengthen the intellect with a daily study practice. That's the practice. The practice is in the study, is in the understanding. This is what I was trying to say. When you have the knowledge truly digested, you will live it. You will automatically live it. Until then, you will understand it. You may appreciate it. You may lecture on it. You may be an authority on it and not live it. You understand? You could be a marriage counselor and have four divorces. This is possible 
In fact, we know that this has happened. We've seen this before. A marriage counselor, a person who's got all the knowledge about marriage and how to have a harmonious relationships has divorced four times, right? So that's knowledge, not wisdom. So you've got to get hold of a systematic study program, like I was telling you about, like the e-learning program at VedantaWorld.org. And I'm not here to sell that. I, if anybody thinks like, oh, this sounds like Joseph is here. Oh, I understand. He's here to sell something. I'm not here to sell something. It's just that my guru, Swamiji, told me, he said, listen, you're not allowed to go make everybody hungry without offering them food. So James and I are out here stirring up the appetite for Vedanta. But it's a one hour on Clubhouse a week is not going to do it for you. Ultimately, you've got to get the real deep sustenance. James and I are both doing the e-learning program every morning. He lives over the fence from me. I can see his light on at 5 a.m. I know he's there studying and watching the lectures of e-learning. You know, uh, so every one of us is doing that. That's that's because we recognize that you're you're so right, Ashish. It's so easy to hear these ideals and hear these higher ways, optimal ways of living, but then not being able to actually execute it or doing it a little bit, but losing track and then getting involved and disturbed and stressed out and whatever it is. It's, it's, it's totally natural for all of us. So to, to combat that, we've got to wake up every day and bathe our intellect in these higher ideas. This is the, this is the approach. And if you're not, if you can't do the e-learning program, next best thing is to get a hold of, some of Swamiji's books, like I mentioned, Holocaust of Attachment is there, uh, Fall of the Human Intellect, Vedanta Treatise, The Eternities. These books, if you read in the order they're written, and that also you can find at vedantaworld.org. There's a, there's a recommended study course, which is described there, which books to read. Even if you systematically make your way through those books, it will help keep your intellect in your life and keep that objectivity going much easier. Um, it, it's impossible without it, actually. You've got to do it. Uh, some daily uh, strengthening of the intellect, some yoga for your intellect. Uh, I also have weekly study groups uh, where I'm teaching on Zoom. So if anyone's interested in that, you can, uh, you can DM us here or you can mail us... Uh, uh, info at, or you can yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. We can give you the zoom links for that. We're just trying to give you different options to feed yourself knowledge every morning, because we all know that it's so true for all of us. Exactly what you say that we may understand something, but we're not able to apply it. We're not able to live it. And that's due to lack of understanding. We haven't fully absorbed it. And to do that absorption, we've got to study and reflect every day. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you for your guidance. Uh, Thank you. You suggested Thank you. two books and you said uh, the online course. I just want to add that I have been reading one book from uh, uh, the Concise Yoga Vashist uh, by Swami Venkateshanand. And uh, I believe that book is also a very, very good book. Just uh, in case you are interested, just read that book. I believe yeah. you will find that also useful. But I don't think you need that. But still, I am recommending that book for you. I because you're already, yeah, I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, I'm familiar actually you, uh, with him, and it is a great book. But first of all, yeah. we need to understand the the, the fundamentals. Yoga Vashishta is like triple PhD stuff. Okay. So okay. 
on in, in, in a topic like this today, we want to focus on fall of the human intellect. We want to focus yes. on Holocaust of attachment, these texts that really define who we are, what we are, and how to best relate. Okay. It so thanks, Ashish. I'll tuck you back you so into much. the audience. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you thank very you. much. Bye -bye. Thank you. And uh, Shay, I believe. Go ahead. Hey, Joseph. Um, Hi. So this might backtrack the conversation, so I don't want to kind of get off track of where y'all were going. Um, no worries. But this related more back to the optimal relationships and what James had briefly brought up about relationships with children. And, mm. you know, it does, it seems like common sense, what you said, you know, that it's all back on us, lead by example, don't let our stressors become our kids' stressors, you know. Yeah. It's my kid's fault if I don't get my to-do list done in a day. So why would I lose my cool when they don't brush their teeth at night? You know, like I think yeah, yeah. kind of makes sense um, and are, you know, worth being more mindful about. Um, so this next question might not make any sense, but also because it is a lot of internal work and not looking at others. But all that to be said, I work with a lot of special needs children and specifically yeah. kind of autism, ADHD, neurodivergent types whose parents want to quote unquote fix or, you know, all of these things that are not appropriate goals. Um, right. And as I've learned more and more about, you know, like we're not going to be using the reinforcement, um, you know, like the ABA type therapies where it's kind of like, do this, get this, do this, get this. We're not training them like dogs for lack, you know, like I think what used to be kind of what everyone's take was now it's like meet them where they are, co-regulate, help them experience the world through their sensory experiences and then help them learn and play in their way. Um, mm. But it's really hard to communicate that to parents who just want their kid basically i guess my question is how do we slowly and gently help other parents meet children meet their own children where they are accept them where they are lead by example kind of co-regulate with them without telling them how to parent their children does that make any sense yeah absolutely um yeah it's tough right so right. <laughs> as you as you <laughs> As you rightly say, um, Vedanta truly is a, a, um, a subjective effort and a subjective science. Um, so one thing from our point of view is to understand clearly um, why parents might have some irrational expectations, mm -hmm. um, which is due to their own natural desires and, and, and things. So in terms of how we relate to them, with very uh, with softness and and understanding, even if you know that a person is uh, being irrational, because mm -hmm. we can we can see with our intellect why they may have that irrationality there. There's there's a lot going on in in that scenario uh, that you talk about. But that being said, and the other thing to to remember, and it's just the law of life, um, is knowledge is taken, not given. Okay. Um, and, uh, but there is, a, a, in a sense, you can perhaps expedite or accelerate the taking of knowledge one way, which is to be suggestive, um, to say, instead of saying, see, anytime anybody says you should, why aren't you? These are all challenging words, right? Uh, yeah. Th then the, our own, anybody talks to any of us like that. 
we, we have a natural defense sort of thing in the mind. So I'm sure that's not ever happening with you, but anytime we, we would look at someone and say, you should actually have this expectation or why don't you have that expectation? That, that never works. Got what, it. what, what will work is, um, very suggestive language. Okay. And, and it's, it's actually like, it's actually an unselfish thing to, to consider like, okay, I want to just say to this person X, like, I just want to be blunt and say X or Y to this person. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, how can I do it in a way that is more comfortable for them? Or how can I kind of put it not to manipulate people? That's it, That's where it's a fine line, you know? Sure. It, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's not, it, it's not about manipulating. It's not about like uh, scheming or anything. Um, but it's just about how can I kind of inject a thought into this interaction in a way that um, is, is so gentle that the person's able to kind of receive it and then maybe think on their own, you know? So, so I'm just talking about what you were saying. If, if there's a child that has any condition or any quality that a parent um, is uh, challenged by or wants to change, you know, one one thing to do is to just be very suggestive thing is to to highlight the positive traits about that child, about that person. Right. Um, perhaps even about the condition that that child has okay. to kind of show that there's a show the bright side, show show it half full and, and just openly kind of be creative. And and it's a it's an unselfish uh, action on your part to, to think about what kind of positive uh things can I highlight to help that person start to see their own child in that, in a positive light, despite certain uh, the conditions or qualities. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. That's really helpful. Just cool. the, the, you know, the taking of, of knowledge first giving, I think is, you know, is worth reminding over and over again also, because yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah. And just generally one thing with regard to taking is like being available, right? So being really making yourself approachable and available to hear out whatever um, it is that folks want to express that also um, will make it more likely that, um, that someone may take uh, what, what it is that you'd like to be giving. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks, Shay. Really good. Thank you. Anybody else have any questions or um, thoughts to share? We have still quite a few of you here in the club. And if you're not following the club, please follow Yoga for Your Intellect. Uh, We're going to be here every Friday morning, 7 a.m. Pacific, talking about different ideas from the Vedanta philosophy. Um, If you'd like more with James and myself, check out yfyi.co. And um, at yfyi.co, we have a weekly long form discussion podcast. There's video also on um, YouTube and on the, on the website itself. So yfyi.co and you can follow us on Instagram. Also, we've got some content there and now, uh, Shwayi, uh, go ahead and welcome. Hello. To Clubhouse. Nice to meet Hello. you. Nice to meet you. Your new member Thanks. here. Welcome. Yes. Yes. I'm from Myanmar. I'm from oh, Myanmar. Wow. Wonderful. How can we help you? Okay. So I, I want to practice my English skills. Yes. Sure. Great. So yes, I would like to meet uh, new people 
in this group. So uh, today um, I'm using the first time. Yes. Great. Do you have any questions about relationships or philosophy, Chui? Okay. So, what's your name, Jules? Your name is Jules. Jules. Uh, yes, Joseph. That's Joseph, right. Joseph, Joseph. Okay, Joseph. Okay. So where are you from? Okay, Shweti, uh, we're gonna be. Uh, we'll move you back to the audience now, and thank you for joining. And uh, let's see. Uh, there was one person who had come up. Uh, anyone else with any questions or thoughts about the philosophy, relationships, anything that you is on your mind? Anybody out there? Great to see so many folks interested in relationships. And here we have uh, Anna. Yes, Anna. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, hey, welcome. Good Go morning. ahead. Thank you for hi, me. hi. Yeah, I don't, I don't distinguish. Uh, people always ask me Anna or Ann. I, I can't. <laughs> it was hard for I me see. to learn English, so. That's yeah. why, because I cannot distinguish very good sense, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. Um, I didn't catch the whole session, and I noticed, um, and I, I hear that you have more information on on the um, you, on YouTube, and then and I can see in your profile also you have more more information. So, um, for for the uh, for the parents that don't have much time with the little ones, and I'm thinking about some 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 um, moms in my family. Uh, they mm -hmm. don't have much time um, in the morning to um, practice any kind of meditation or any kind of mindfulness with their, their children, their toddlers. Is there any, um, I know, uh, I almost want to say, but I mean, I can find another word to say, is there any uh, sort of quick um, meditation that they could actually benefit or it would be better just for them to wait until whenever they have the time, which is usually after their work? Uh, to do to do what uh, meditation the, uh, meditation how, how with regard to children though you yes. because they have children yes I'm thinking about uh, I'm sorry I have all these thoughts in my mind uh, the parents that can't they don't have enough time to do some kind of meditation in the morning with their where their kids before their day starts you know like school mm. and work um, other than say 10 minutes they have say 10 minutes to to dedicate yeah. to that and I, I know it will be very beneficial to do more than that but if that's all they have would you in your experience would you say is will that be okay and, and if so do you have any um link or any books or anything that you could recommend yeah i'm glad you asked that so it's not so much about meditation right it's about bathing your intellect in higher ideas, higher understanding of life and living. That's really what we are recommending. Sitting, as you rightly say, with knowledge. So even if you get 20 minutes before you start your day to remember even fundamentals, I have a body, I have a mind, I have an intellect. Long after the idea is exciting, even if you remember nothing else, just remember I have a mind, intellect, these are the two equipments, these are how they function in my life, this is what I'm here for, right? So even a simple thought that I have a mind and an, an intellect at the beginning of each day is a massive thing, is a massively uh, uh, cleansing thing to do. But much better than that is to get hold of one of these books that we talk about. Fall of the Human Intellect is one of them. It's the first book you should read. 
it and if a if a person can just read one paragraph as before they start their day it will be a game changer over time slowly read and think uh, then there's a whole another there's a whole uh, syllabus of books that we recommend an entire study course which you can see at vedantaworld.org it's listed there the the list of books we recommend but the important thing is to be very consistent in that daily study and exposure of your intellect to these higher ideas. It will lend you clarity to start your day. This is a much better use of time than just sitting with your eyes closed in so-called meditation. Much better use of time to strengthen your intellect. And in terms of not having time, look, I mean, it depends on what our values are, right? If we, if you wouldn't say, I don't have time to brush my teeth. You wouldn't say, I don't have time to take a shower. But we're happy to say, I don't have time to correct my worldview every day. When in fact, that's more important. The more important thing is to correct our worldview every day, to get the right understanding of ourselves and the world and what we're doing in life before we plunge into our life every day. This is much more important than brushing our teeth or taking a shower, and yet we neglect it for lifetimes on end. So when you really understand that for me to be, to do what I'm here to do as a human being, for me also to be my best self as a parent, as a son, as a spouse, as a brother, whatever, to be the best I can be, I've got to take care of my worldview, my perspective, my inner understanding. When you understand that, when you make a value for it above everything else in that way, all of a sudden you'll find you have time. So we have time for what we make time for. It's not, there's no such thing as, uh, as there not being time. It's what we value. Okay, Anna? Yes, uh, you're very right. Thank you. That was, I didn't see it before the way in it. That is true. Uh, that is something that we, it's not about, we don't have time, is that we just have to do it because it's, it's, it's part of what we do. Like you say, it's brushing teeth and, and taking a shower. I didn't think about, oh, I don't have time to it. I, I do it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for the reminder. And also, uh, yeah, in the meditation world, I, I, I just use it. I, I mean, I call it breathing. I call it uh, sitting with myself. Um, it's just most people call it meditation. But yeah, thank you also for, for that. Um, um, you know, clarification that is not necessarily how common people think of meditation, but yeah, rather that. Can you repeat the word, that phrase? Because um, some people are afraid of the word meditation because what sometimes it comes with, you know, other implications, as you mentioned. But the yeah. phrase that you said is so, it's so more clear, it's so more, it's, it's, more, it's, it's what it is. And, and would you please, please repeat it so I can write it down? Uh, which <laughs> phrase, can... though? I'm a bit, uh, I'm not remembering. Uh, when I say for... that. Yoga for your intellect. Yoga for it. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. That's what yeah. it is. It's the name of the club. Yes. That, that's, yeah, <laughs> right. that's what we're trying so to do. Is We're just trying to give the intellect um, different poses. It's, it's literally uh, exposing your intellect to different ways of understanding, to keep it healthy, to keep it fresh, to keep it limber, all the similar um, effects to when we're talking about physical yoga for the body. 
you want to be expansive, you want to be purified, you want to be healthy, same thing at the intellectual level, but it takes direct effort by the intellect in the gym of the intellect, which is Vedanta. It requires that every day. Thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you, Anna. Appreciate it. And uh, anyone else today? Uh, maybe another one or two questions if they're there, we can do. Uh, we've already been here almost two hours, so really cool. Great that so many people are, are interested in, in this type of knowledge. And we are here every Friday morning, 7 a.m. And uh, James and I, uh, our podcast, you can see at yfyi.co and Yoga for Your Intellect YouTube pages, Instagram, all types of options for more of this knowledge. And I mentioned earlier, mention again, I do offer weekly classes on Zoom. Uh, so uh, those go into the, the depth of some of the Vedantic texts. And um, you can interact with me there also. You could send a mail to yogaforyourintellect at gmail.com if you're interested in that. And we have uh, Glauber. I believe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Go ahead, Glover. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, I'm, I'm talking from Brazil, and uh, I am a meditator for more than one year now. Uh, very okay. happy to to have engaged in these activities. And uh, I'm, I'm very uh, curious on a type of meditation that is Yoga Nidra. Uh, so... Uh, there are many kinds of yogas, right? And I'm not a specialist on this matter. I'm a mm -hmm. startup uh, entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And uh, but if you could uh, enlighten us a little bit on on this uh, path of of meditation, uh, in my experience, I perceived a, a great shift uh, after the thirty uh, first days. So. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, uh, after one year, almost uh, uh, one year, I, I I didn't get any uh, boost, you know, in 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 a sense of uh, getting to a higher state of of consciousness. So, mm. yeah, I I would really uh, love to to hear something about uh, that that matter. Okay, that's that's great, Glauber. Thank you for telling us that. Um, so, uh, look, the only way to meditate and get to higher states of consciousness is to remove your desires. The only way to remove desires is to gain higher knowledge. That's the only way. Otherwise, it's like an airplane trying to take off when it's far overweight, you know? Imagine you fill up an airplane with sand. It's not taking off. Or if it does take off, it'll only be able to fly barely 10 feet above the ground. So what's the emphasis in this path, in the path of yoga for your intellect, is on knowledge, is on applying our intellect to higher values and to consciously seeing the world from a higher point of view repeatedly, consistently over years, so much so that we drop our lower desires. We get attached to a higher understanding, a higher way of living, a higher vision of life. And by doing so, the lower values, the lower desires in our personality fall off. When those lower desires fall off, we're able to generally concentrate better. 
we're able to generally act better. We're able able to be less agitated, less disturbed, less often. And we become more and more stable, more and more purified, more and more quiet inside through knowledge, through study and reflection upon knowledge. That's what we're doing here. At the end of that path, when there's very little selfishness left, when we've understood the futility of ego and egoistic living and all of that that we're all in now, then at that point, Glauber, you should sit and meditate. Not before. Meditation is 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. So we've got to put in effort. Our focus now should be on effort in understanding and trying to get our thoughts into a higher place, trying to sublimate our selfish, egoistic desires, trying to grow out of our multifarious, multifold, endless desires for the world and things in the world and cultivate slowly a desire for that truth that higher state of consciousness that you talk about. But the only way you can do it is through yoga for your intellect, through knowledge, through study and reflection on Vedanta, or on whatever higher uh, system you prefer. But you've got to study and reflect upon higher values of life. So one of the great teachers in this tradition, Shankaracharya, he said, knowledge is as essential for liberation as fire is for cooking. In other words, you can't do without it. He, Shankaracharya was not eating uh, raw food, you understand. For him, food meant hot food. And for hot food, you have got to have a fire. So if we want to be liberated, if we want to get into that higher state of consciousness, we've got to study and reflect and bathe our intellect in higher knowledge every single day. This will make us more meditative make us more able to concentrate, more, make us more objective. That person at the end of the spiritual path can walk through the final door in the actual seat of meditation. That's the classical place for meditation in this path. So again, study, reflection. That's the emphasis, Glauber. You okay? Yes, uh, thank you very much. I have another question, but maybe... Uh, I, I can let anyone else uh, have the question after go me. Go ahead. Go ahead, Glover. Yeah? Thank you. Okay. Thank you, but go ahead. So, uh, if in in my uh, case, for example, uh, I am meditating, and when I connect, I can reach a field uh, inside of me, like if I'm connected to the universe. Mm -hmm. So... This only happened after one year, uh, meditating every day, mm -hmm. and uh, but uh, is this a good sign or not? Uh, and yes, uh, how can I uh, be 99% uh, perspiration, right, and 1% inspiration more in the day-to-day -day practices? What is your your guess on See, that. Uh, Glauber, practicing and teaching the mind how to get into a trance state is not what we're talking about. That, that's not the role of meditation. Yeah, it, it's 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 a, actually a roadblock. I'm telling you to stop it. We're telling you to study and reflect on knowledge. 
the sitting with your eyes closed in meditation is a waste of time. It has a place at the end of the spiritual path. If you were truly ready for meditation, you wouldn't be asking these questions. So there's confusion. There's non-understanding. You said a minute ago that you're only uh, able to go to a certain point. And beyond that, you can't go any further. So the whole world is doing yoga and meditation. That's all. Because these two are easy to teach. Comparatively, trying to teach knowledge and understanding and trying to deal with the subtleties of philosophy that is being done here. It's much different, much more difficult to market. We're not here. We give this knowledge for free. We're sharing with the world. But those who are trying to sell it, this is not a marketable product. So meditation and yoga are easy to sell. So that's why it's being uh, hawked all around the world. But it's not. It is out of step. Rather than trying to sit and go into different states of mind, which is what you're doing. Instead of that, get to higher knowledge, study and reflection upon higher values of life. Then it, you will become objective, as you say, throughout your day. Otherwise, it, what, this will continue to happen. You'll train yourself to do some sort of trance state every morning for decades. But in your life, you're having problems, you're agitated, relationships aren't working, this isn't working, that isn't working. So there's no, there's no connection there. A person who's qualified for meditation, who has such governance over their personality, will have no problem with the world. So if a person has a so-called meditation practice and is not getting along in their life, there's, a, there's something wrong there. That's a massive contradiction, but nobody thinks this way. So meditation, instead of meditation, leave it aside. It's a wonderful thing to aim for in life eventually. Leave that aside and put in some effort to study and reflect upon these higher knowledge, higher values of life. Strengthen the intellect generally to handle our life, to be objective, to be a witness, to manage our affairs peacefully and successfully. Do that first. As you grow on that path, you'll become more and more meditative naturally. And at the end of the path, traditionally, after, throughout all of these scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, all of them, he says, after you've purified yourself, after you've controlled yourself, after you've managed yourself fully, after you've purified your heart completely, after you've done all this work, then sit and meditate, not before. All right. And, and uh, is there a way to know when we reach this uh, target? You will know. You will know in the sense that when you start developing your intellect, you will become more and more clear, clear. once you have the full picture. You will know, look, uh, there's no point in sitting here with a stressed out, agitated mind. So the person who reaches that level genuinely with a full understanding of the, the true role of meditation, they will know that, okay, my life is sorted. I'm completely purified. And it's not arrogance. It's not ego. But they just understand that. That, look, uh, the work is done. The inner mind is calm. I'm unattached, unaffected, undisturbed. 
but anything in life externally, it is appropriate now for me to plunge this mind into its source, into meditation, into silence. They will know that. And also, of course, you if you are fortunate enough to find a guru, if you're fortunate to, enough to find a guide, somebody to help you uh, on the path, and you surrender to them, they can also more easily see when uh, you may be on track, when you may be off track. Uh, so that's also incredibly important. But the main thing is, the first thing is to get an understanding of what we are talking about with the entire spiritual path. What is the entire uh, structure of life and as a seeker of truth? And how should it look? And that comes through study of this uh, ancient tradition of Vedanta. This is what we recommend anyway, uh, through the various uh, avenues that I've been talking about. And for anyone who's come late also, you, you can uh, all of these uh, sessions that we're having um, are replayed now on our page on here on clubhouse so the replays the recordings are there if you want to go back and listen again and reflect again on whatever you might have heard it's all there from this week last week's is also there <clears throat> and we'll leave those on as long as they can be on uh so thanks glober i'm going to bring up uh, ash now and uh, thank you uh we're going to listen to what yash has to say uh go ahead yash oh yash is gone sorry lost him any other questions today? Som Banerjee. Let me see if Som comes up here. <clears throat> Go ahead, Som. Hello. Hey, Joseph. Can you Hi. hear me? Yes. Hi. <laughs> Excellent talk. I, I think this is one of the best talks i've heard on clubhouse so oh, cool. anyway yeah so I, I joined a little late but while you were uh mentioning i i did google up you know the vedanta world uh dot org and you mentioned about a course which you are doing uh through e-learning yeah and i see the actual courses like uh, people who are doing it in person is like 4 15 in the morning to almost 9 p.m at night Yes. Is your e-learning also similar kind of a thing? And it's yeah, like, no. yeah, nine uh, o'clock is retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, <laughs> not, not, not to worry. Yeah, what, what you're looking at is a schedule of the day at the ashram. So okay. Vedanta, Vedanta Academy is uh, runs a three-year residential course, um, which I've done uh, uh, years ago, and um, that course. Is, has been recorded, um, and you can watch the recordings of Swamiji lecturing in that course from about 10 years ago. And uh, so the e-learning program that we recommend is about 400-something 400, 400 lectures, uh, which covers the entire syllabus that you would cover if you were at the Vedanta Academy in person doing the three-year program there. So... Uh, that's really it's a collection it's it's a uh, a subscription as it were to these 400 lectures and that being said we do recommend that you watch in the early morning hours so uh you know 4 a.m is ideal that that is the best time of day in terms of receptivity of the mind calmness of mind that's the time of day where um we can uh, absorb this higher knowledge the best, 
but for a lot of people, 4 a.m. might not work. They have to, they have a job, they have whatever responsibilities. So 5 a.m. is okay, but really it should be uh, that we watch the lectures in e-learning uh, in the early morning hours at some point before the sun rises. This is the tradition. And it's a fascinating thing, Som. I mean, in every serious spiritual tradition in the world, they wake up in the early morning and, and do their study and do their practice or do their chanting or whatever they do. In all the religious traditions, the Christians, the Buddhists, the everybody who's living like a, a serious monkish life, they all wake up in the early morning. So you can have your daily life. That's the whole point of e-learning. You have your normal life. You have your work, your family, your everything. But you decide, I'm going to wake up every morning and spend an hour or 45 minutes or whatever you can watching these lectures. And you don't have to do anything. You just watch and follow along. Like, obviously, you have to follow along You're with mentally, right? You're not going to get it by osmosis. But you watch it mentally. You pay attention. You concentrate for as long as you can. If after half an hour, you're like, I can't take anymore, pause it and watch the rest the next day. And the amazing no, thing is you, you can pause and reflect along the way. And obviously, for those of us who did the course in person, we couldn't ask Swami to pause while I think for 10 minutes, you know. So that itself is a really wonderful uh, thing about e-learning is that you can pause and take your time. But you do, we do, uh, you are required to finish the lectures within the three-year time. And a lot of people sign up for one year at a time. So then you have to finish a certain number within one year. And that's so that it, it does create uh, some sense of, it helps you with being disciplined and consistent. If you know that, look, I'm, I should be at this lecture by this day, you know, and the course actually tells you where, are, where do you need to be in order to finish in time, you know, so that if you don't just say, oh, I, I, now I bought this subscription, I'll watch it next year. It doesn't work that way. You do it with a dedication to bathing your intellect in these higher ideas every day. And, and there's nothing like it. So, I mean, uh, I, I teach classes weekly on Zoom. You, you're welcome to join those as well. Um, we have YouTube videos. Swamiji has YouTube videos. There's a lot that you can see, but nothing compares to the e-learning program if you're really serious about developing the intellect and, and moving forward as a human being. I would uh, agree with you, Joseph. I mean, what you uh, have been talking about or whatever I have listened since the time I've coming, I've come in into the room is more like a way of life, you know, being yes, taught yes. or uh, preached by you. So fantastic! I just have one last follow up question. So I know that there was a talk about kids and things like that. Is there a shorter version for kids available or something on these e-learning programs? There because is actually, <laughs> yeah, good there question. Is? Um, there yeah. is, yeah. There's a few different. Um, kind of shorter modules that you can find um, at the at the Vedanta World site about e-learning. Uh, it's it's elearning.vedantaworld.org. Okay, elearning.vedantaworld.org. Yeah, okay, e That's the homepage for e-learning. And you'll find there's four uh, modules that are kept there. There's the complete three-year course which is the all 400 lectures. Then there's a module just mainly for business and relationships, kind of for people that are working and corporates and whatnot. Uh, and then there's the direction for youth. 
that's the one that uh, is great for young folks to watch. I would say they, they need to be at least like 11 or 12 years old. Uh, it and this is, is all in English, right? It's all in English, yes. Okay, great. All right. So a, a direction for youth is is um, one that you could uh, have for the kids. And um, it's about uh, 60 lectures, roughly um, 62 lectures, uh, I think, that um, takes about one year. And it's you need to be the kids, if they're 13 to 16 years old, roughly that age, is that's a great module for them. And since we were talking about parenting, there's also a module for called Mold Your Children, which is is, is all about parenting. And that's a slightly shorter, um, 40 lectures. Um, and uh, really focuses on, uh, gives parents a good idea of, of what Vedanta has to say about parenting. So oh, yeah, definitely I look into all that. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely I will. Uh, I'll hit you and up. And where, where, where are you based? Info. Where are you based on? I'm based in California, the Bay Area. Where? Bay Area. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, we I, we do have uh, uh, people teaching classes around the world also, but no one in the Bay Area at the moment. Uh, I'm down here in Santa Monica. But uh, but yeah, stay in touch. Follow the club here. Um, uh, go to yfyi.co and we have a YouTube channel you could subscribe to. James and I are doing talks there uh, every week, um, all these different options. But I'm glad you're asking about e-learning. That, that's really the, the optimal thing to do. No, my pleasure, actually. I mean, as I said, you know, you have been one of the first speakers I've kind of gravitated towards, you know. There's a lot of stuff on Clubhouse. I'm a very new member, but your lecture has been really pleasant. So thanks, thanks for that. So. Yeah. Thank you. Really Thank great. You. Great to have you. And guys, we're going to wrap up there. Uh, it's been two great hours. Uh, I've got to get on with things today, but um, really appreciate all of you here. And if you want to watch again, it will be um, it will be saved in the uh, replays here on the club. So follow the club, follow all of us, and we will see you, hear you next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific. Thank you all very much. I'll be closing the room now. Thank you.